0: Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore what we can do to treat our conditions to live more fulfilling lives. I'm your host, Carrie Gabrielson, and I've been diagnosed with HEDS, MCAS, POTS, and other related conditions. If you have questions, feedback, suggestions for future episodes, or are just looking to chat about hypermobility, feel free to reach out at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com. Today, our guest is Dr. Elise Cruz, who goes by at zebracornmd on Instagram, a perfect name for her, as we're about to learn more about. Dr. Cruz is a multiracial, first-generation, board-certified family medicine doctor with myopathic EDS and POTS and a passion for teaching. She obtained her degree from The Ohio State University and did her residency training at the University of Minnesota Medical Center, Smiley's Clinic. Elise now works at Alina Health in Blaine, Minnesota, and she's developed specialized knowledge and expertise in diagnosing and treating various types of EDS, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Dr. Cruz, hello, and thank you so much for joining us
1: today. Carrie, Thank you for that introduction and thank you so much for all that you do for the hypermobility community. I'm honored and grateful to be here today with you. And I wanted to just add a few more things just for overall inclusivity. Um, I go by pronouns she, her, hers. I'm an olive skin tone, multiracial, feminine presenting person with bright magenta hair, visible tattoos. I'm wearing a comfy lilac sweater. And in all honesty, I am in my pajama pants. Um, I also do want to acknowledge that the land that I reside on is the land of the Lakota and Anishinaabe.
0: Thank you so much for that wonderful um, contextualization and that inclusivity. That's such a great example. And I'm thinking how I need to start doing that um, in other episodes. You did it so effortlessly and I've been sort of confused in how to do that. You did it really excellently. And thank you so much for your time. I'm so excited to speak with you. You are just amazingly knowledgeable and you have such a great um, presence in social media and, and you're doing so much to help the um, hypermobile and EDS communities. And you are a rare example in the EDS community of someone who was diagnosed fairly early in life. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were first diagnosed and what your early manifestations of EDS were for you?
1: Absolutely. You know, I think my situation is definitely a rarity and it was actually more of an incidental diagnosis. Um, I have a twin sibling and both them and I were showing signs as young as three or four of you know, joint hypermobility, we had significantly flat feet. And we kept complaining to our mother, like our, our feet hurt. We would be out, you know, walking at a mall or just out in the community. And, and we would complain of our, our feet being in pain. And my mom's like, that's that's weird, your are kids. Um, and so due to those symptoms, we eventually did get connected with a pediatric orthopedic surgeon who who did an experimental surgery to help with our pe- our pez planus, as we call in the medical field, flat foot, um, around the age of eight. It actually wasn't until we started dislocating in puberty, and then incidentally, a cousin of ours was diagnosed with EDS, that the orthopedist also kind of put all these pieces together between you know our significant joint hypermobility, our joint pain and dislocations, and was like, oh this, this is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And, you know, at that time, you know, I, I got sent to physical therapy, given some general knee braces and kind of that was about it at that point in time. Um, but it was, it was really opening when I've worked with many patients, how many of them, you know, it will go 10, 20, even 30 years for some people to get a diagnosis. I think right now in the literature, it's showing about 10 to 12 years on average from the start of symptoms to actual diagnosis.
0: Yeah. In fact, I was just looking at that research yesterday, actually, and I saw, I wonder if I still have it pulled up here, the Demmler et al. whale study, which is amazing, and I highly recommend anyone check out if they haven't read it. They talk about a mean of 14 years between first clinical manifestations and actual diagnosis. But for 25% of patients, this delay lasts over 28 years. And I'm just thinking, that is so unacceptable. That is so long, like, that's, a that's a full adult lifetime. That's almost two full adult lifetimes. Like, yeah, so it's uh, incredible that your mom picked up on, you know, the, these early symptoms and the feet pain. And that's something that's really common in EDS. And so great, you're able to get connected with someone who could give you answers so young, because it still feels like EDS knowledge is in its infantile or maybe even pre infantile <laughs> stage in, in a lot of places. And so that's amazing. Um, and you also have what's considered one of the mer- more rare types, but it's important to recognize like there's never been a population study at all. So we don't really know which types are rare or not. I mean, we know pretty well that HEDS is definitely not rare, um, but the other types, it's just really hard to tell but you have one of the definitely more rarely diagnosed types of myopathic EDS. And I'll be honest, I know virtually nothing about that type. Can you tell us about what myopathic EDS is and how it differs from other types of EDS?
1: So myopathic EDS or some kind called MEDS is quoted to be a one in a million kind of diagnosis. I think in the medical literature, when I was last looking, there's I think only twelve persons that have ever been you know, formally diagnosed with this condition. Um, I was diagnosed as a hypermobile EDs for over twenty years. You know, and I I was privileged in the last six months to pursue genetic testing. And I trust me, I was I was not expecting those results. But I did find it very interesting with all of my consultations and seeing patients. There were just many times where I felt like my symptoms didn't fully align with hypermobile EDs for what I was seeing for some of my patients. I definitely had the hypermobility, and when I, I look back at you know the the general criteria for hypermobile yes i I look like it on paperwork but when you go down to the genetic level you know i i have you know the myopathic COL 12a1 abnormality In my case, I have a dominant form, so that means out of the two genes that I received from my parents, um, one of them is abnormal. We do see with myopathic, there's actually two forms, both a dominant and recessive, meaning either one abnormal gene change or two um, gene changes, um, one from each side of those genes, um, causing uh, the things that we often will see that manifest manifest for myopathic EDS. Um, Often when we're looking at someone with myopathic EDS, especially the recessive form, Forms. We'll see a lot of muscle weakness very early on in life. Um, we also will see things like muscle contractures more in like legs, knees, arms, elbows, but definitely seeing hypermobility in what we call more the distal joints. So in fingers, ankles, feet, toes, things of that sorts. Um, often we'll also see with myopathics similar with hypermobile or other types of EDS is atrophic scarring. Um, is a, another kind of outstanding finding with that. But I, I will say myopathic EDS it's everything when I'm looking, even for myself is kind of a, a one-liner or a case study. It's um, there's still a lot of very minimal information um, that's out there about this specific subtype of Ehlers-Danlos.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. How 12 people in the world uh, known and and that you got that diagnosis and it's interesting that you were in the HEDS camp for, I think you said, 20 years before getting the diagnosis fine-tuned and really corrected. And that kind of makes me wonder about that one in a million figure and how many other people out there with HEDS or don't don't know about EDS at all who may also have MEDS. So, you know, I wonder if you're really one in 100,000, one in 10,000, Um but regardless, it's incredible that, you know, given the almost complete, you know, lack of information about that specific subtype that you were able to, to get that diagnosed. And it's a, it's a great reminder of the importance of getting an accurate diagnosis and how you can have one diagnosis and think it's accurate or pr- most of the way pretty accurate, but there's always more to learn and, and that these things can, can change and, and get more precise over time.
1: Yeah, and I'd I tell people all the time, you know, connective tissue disorders, there's, there's over 200 that we're aware of at this point in time. And I remember med school, I think I learned all of a dozen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say connective tissue disorders are like walking into a pain store asking for the color blue, you know, how many different kinds are there? They're all blue. They're all different and unique. And some look so similar, you can barely tell difference. And some are so different that you're like, well, yeah, those are, you know, that's baby blue, that's navy blue. Mm -hmm. Um, And so many times I'm floating in this, you know, sea of blue, I'm looking for that specific blue with EDS, and sometimes it's finding that very unique one um, for a per- person, so I can help them with their best treatment and management.
0: Yeah, I love that metaphor. It, that's such a great descriptor, and I think it's easy and it resonates with virtually everyone. And you know, we all know the difference between you know a very light baby blue and a, the deepest navy. Um, and so there's just this this whole spectrum, and I think it's amazing that you know, you're so aware of that. And you're, you're looking to find that person's shade so that you can treat that specific iteration of EDS or, or of a connective tissue condition that they may have. And it's a great reminder, too, of, you know, there are so many connective tissue conditions, and yet only very few, you know, get taught about and even the ones that are the subject of teaching in medical programs, PT programs, they don't get very much airtime either. So it's, uh, it's really a wilderness. Um, and, uh, so I, I really admire your, um, you know, close eye looking out for those individual shades. And I think that's a really beautiful metaphor for, uh, this condition, which is so perplexing in part because it is made up of such a wide range of clinical presentations and just of people's lives. and. Um,
1: I'll, I'll never forget sitting in the back of my med school classroom and finally I see EDS up on the board. I'm like, yay, we're talking about it. And it was literally two PowerPoint slides. It was all classic EDS. And... The examples were so vague, and I'm just like the little zebra, kind of raising my hand in the back and kind of being like, You're a first year med student, why are you saying anything? And I'm like, Okay, never mind.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh. what a bummer! Yeah, and I know because <laughs> it's such a great opportunity. I mean, to learn from people that actually have these conditions, and oh, uh, yeah, that's a troubling issue in the community in general. There's a lot of research going on that doesn't actually take into consideration the experiences of people with EDS, which I find Mm -hmm. really troubling. Um, I I heard about one really big research endeavor that was going on um, where there was an inquiry made as to why there weren't um, questionnaires sent out to the patients in connection with what was being done because that had been done in other instances. And that the response this person got back was something to the effect of, oh, the doctors don't need to ask the patients because they already know about EDS. And I was like, what? Like, you know, right? Like, even for the most compassionate, understanding listener, there is no substitute for someone living with these conditions and and their perspective. And so uh, I just I really hope future research goes in the direction of Um, at least having patients with EDS, you know, as consultants on projects, helping to kind of guide this stuff, because as I'm sure you're very well versed in the subject, there's a lot of nuance. And there's a lot when it comes to EDS that people are just not comfortable talking about, or they don't even, they're not even aware that some, some symptom or something that's happening is quote unquote, a thing, like, it's just their normal experience. And so You know, especially for people that don't grow up or don't have other hypermobile or people with Ehlers-Danlos around them, it can be so hard for patients to even make, you know, sense of what's going on in their bodies, let alone an outside observer.
1: So um, we we don't do a a good enough job of educating people of. of our bodies. Mm-hmm. I mean, many of us, we what we experience every day is what we we think is normal until someone tells us otherwise. Um, and so that's what's been kind of beautiful of connecting with patients. You know that that decompression, that just that you know, high anxiety to all of a sudden someone just leave, giving that sigh of relief when they look at me and they're like, "You have EDS," and I'm like, "I do." And they go, you get it, you understand. And just that level of just that big sigh out and just seeing seeing that that vulnerability and trust from a patient. I mean, it's, it's absolutely priceless um, during my time spent with them.
0: Absolutely, that's incredible. And I can only imagine how validating and, and wonderful that would be. And here's looking forward to a day when a lot more patients with EDS will have access to physicians, if not with EDS, People that are very well-versed in a way better scientific foundation than what we have right now. Because even with HEDS and classical and BEDS, like there is just not nearly enough real rigorous scientific peer-reviewed research on really any of this. And so, yeah, it's, it's a tough time, but people like you give me hope that, you know, you're, you're fighting the good fight. And in your current practice, you work with many patients with EDS and other hypermobility conditions. First, let's talk a little bit about the diagnostic process, something that can be incredibly challenging for many patients. How do you go about assessing and diagnosing connective tissue conditions like EDS? How do you find their particular shade of blue, so to speak?
1: Um, so that that's a fantastic and wonderful question because it's 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 very, very complex and kind of extensive. You know, I, I tell people all the time. You know, it's not one thumb trick, one finger trick. It's, it's not though I can, I can easily do the splits kind of thing. It's, it's looking at that full picture of someone and taking a step back, um, and looking at that history, family, physical, um, injuries, surgeries, all of those things. You know, I've, I've been seeing EDS patients. I kid you not, since literally my first day in clinic, as you know, as a junior doctor, as a, as a resident, a first year resident, or known as an intern, um, I had a patient on my schedule who was, um, it stated fibromyalgia as a diagnosis. They were in their early 20s. And I know that often fibromyalgia can be a co-occurring condition, but it also sometimes can actually be a misdiagnosis for EDS. And I kind of went on on a whim and I kind of looked at them and I'm like, do you have issues with your joints dislocating? And the look on their face going like, wait, wait, how do you know about that? I, I can't believe, wait, who did you see that somewhere in my chart? Um, and then we would realized after kind of talking a little bit further that this was potentially a misdiagnosis for the patient, but um it I didn't have a big significant jump up of my consultations till probably about 2021. As in most uh, EDS resources, one of uh, my name got posted on an online EDS support forum. Um and then the herd, as we say, came a running. Um my current consultations when I'm evaluating a patient are usually about an hour long for my initial consult, even if someone has a prior diagnosis. Um I have seen it take up to two hours sometimes and over several different visits just for me to get maybe a more extensive history intake, um, depending on you know every single patient. A large majority of the time I'm spending going through history, family history, previous diagnoses. Um, I'm look- I'm also going through a pretty extensive list talking about symptoms that patients may not have put together or other providers not- may have not put together, realizing this may be related to a connective tissue disorder. Um, I tend to surprise my patients because the physical exam is a lot more more extensive than they have done usually with other providers. It usually takes me about 10 minutes plus or minus, depending on what's going on with the patient. You know, I'm looking at majority, if not all the joints, I I look beyond the Bighton score because we've definitely seen hypermobility outside the Bighton score. So ankles, kneecaps, finger joints, shoulders, you know, looking at all of those things, you know, I'm, I'm, physically touching skin, I'm, a, I'm assessing the texture, I'm looking for scars and looking for stretch marks and abnormal locations, I'm listening to someone's heart, am I hearing any abnormalities there? I'm measuring joints to see, you know, how much are they hyperextending? Is it, you know, what we would consider kind of a, a typical range or, you know, is someone, you know, pretty significantly um You know, over hyperextending their elbows. Um, I'm even, you know, measuring people's arm spans. I'm looking to see how long their arms are to how tall they are. I'm looking for those things that we often will see in EDS community. I always tell people this consultation is a truly head to toe evaluation, both historical and physical. Um, I, I feel very blessed with my background and training as a family medicine provider. I am that big picture person. I'm taking that step back and putting all those pieces together. You know, I'm again with family practice. You know, the youngest patient I've seen for evaluation is five years old, and the oldest patient I've seen is, you know, 86. And I've seen all those ages in between. And I'm able to do that not only as my personal background, but my training in family medicine.
0: That's incredible. And I'm so happy to hear that you go beyond the bite and score because uh, I've been, been reading and learning about, thanks to some amazing guests who were on the podcast recently, but the episode. Uh, I think we'll be out by the time this one is out, but they really opened my eyes to the issues with the Biton score and how, shall we say, I guess incomplete at best it is. So I think that's wonderful um, that you do this whole person detailed analysis. There's just so many issues with the kind of formal diagnostic criteria that actually that I've learned about through doing this podcast. And thanks to the comments of, listeners and conversations with doctors. Like, for example, someone brought to my attention in the 2017 guidelines for diagnosing HEDS, which I think it's important to note, were put out as proposed guidelines. I believe that was the language. And I don't believe they've ever been validated or anything like that. And now they just are... being put out as the guidelines, which makes me really uncomfortable. But one of the features, so there's like the features A, B, and C, and you have to have either A and B or A and C, there's like this kind of um, algorithm sort of or formula for figuring this out. Uh And feature B Uh is that you need a first generation relative who's been diagnosed independently of you. And so a um, listener commented on one of the past episodes, well, what about adopted people? And I thought what a great point. Like, exactly. Like, that's the simplest illustration of this, right? Like, you know, an adopted person very likely has no ability to establish if they have a first person relative diagnosis. But taking a step back, you know, we know how underdiagnosed this condition is. And so it just makes no sense to me to have that be part of the requirements of a condition. And uh, someone else pointed out, another physician I was speaking with recently, you can have spontaneous mutations as well. So how does that factor into having a first degree relative? And I'm not aware of any other genetic conditions that have a requirement like that. So there's a lot of issues with it. And I've been hearing for a long time that there would be, you know, updated diagnostic guidelines, but haven't seen it yet. And so it's just a breath of fresh air to hear that you have that open-minded whole person approach and you're really assessing a person head to toe and their life and their symptoms. And I think that's what hypermobile patients need and deserve, frankly. Yeah.
1: And often I'll tell them you don't meet criteria at this time. I say that can change in the future. You know, I've definitely seen that where, you know, bodies have changed after pregnancies or injuries or things of that sorts. So it's never the like, you know, one and done situation, bodies are changing over time. And just knowing that the assessment at this time is kind of showing this or that. Um, but I definitely tell patients, i like, like, if things change, something happens, please come back, come see me. I want to make sure that we're continuing to assess you to see what's going on.
0: That's great, too. And an important point to make, because we know that these things change over a lifetime in individuals. And, you know, some people's joints tend to stiffen as they get older. Or like, in my case, Um, I used to be able to put my hands flat on the floor without bending my knees, but I've had two hip surgeries and spine (laughs) surgery. So life events come into play. Natural aging comes into play. There's just like you said, hormones, pregnancy, there's so much going on in any one given life that people can kind of vary on where they are in their Shade of blue to again use your uh, wonderful metaphor. And as you've discussed, you've diagnosed people from ages five to 80. And first of all, wow, and kudos to you for being willing to work with such a broad range of patients who I'm sure all have their own unique needs and challenges. What are the unique challenges when it comes to diagnosing children? And do you have any recommendations for parents out there who may be wondering? whether their children have EDS or hypermobility and what they should do?
1: That's a fantastic question. You know, I was really elated to see at one of the national EDS conferences that they had brought up that they're looking at putting out a separate diagnostic criteria for pediatrics or our younger patients, because I totally agree. This needs to be changed um, a lot of kids and adolescents just honestly haven't lived long enough to have these symptoms present by the time that they're seeing me you know i i can look back and say all of my atrophic scars i didn't get till i was in my 20s you know after surgical procedures i i had none of those when i was younger when i was assessed um, and many kids and adolescents just don't meet all of the quote-unquote clinical diagnostic criteria we need at them t- at this time and there's many patients who I, I'm definitely seeing joint hypermobility, pain, things that we would consider uh, not typical for that person's age. That I'm assessing this almost you know annually um, to see is something changing. You know, puberty is a common quote unquote, what sometimes we would call trigger um, that we'll see for patients. Like I said, I remember started dislocating in puberty. I've watching these people over time. Um, many of this we'll often see for family members who you know. Uh, A parent has a diagnosis and they they definitely are seeing similar things in their, you know, in their children that they saw in themselves. And so that's why I think it's so important with these kids is that we don't say, oh, well, you don't, you don't meet the, the, the adult checklist, which is meant for a fully grown post puberty person. Um, and that we're looking at them with the full lens as well as believing them. I think that's what crushes my heart so often is people saying, you know, I expressed how much pain I was as a child, as an adolescent, and wasn't taken seriously. Um, so I, I'm just hoping that with these new diagnostic criteria, hopefully, I think by the end of the year is what they kind of estimated that they've come out, that we can get more persons diagnosed earlier so that we can continue to get them support earlier on and get them better quality of life.
0: Absolutely. I share your vision and that dream wholeheartedly. I think it's so important to make that point about the damage that's done when people are not believed. There's a double-edged sword, like almost everything when it comes to hypermobility, it feels like. In some ways, it feels like medical gaslighting is starting to get more attention and people are becoming more aware of it. And then you see things like that Daily Mail article that I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen that said, (laughs) "Uh, yeah, you know, Um, (laughs) that was your heavy sigh was (laughs) a great diplomatic response to that. For those listeners who don't know, there's an article that came out in the Daily Mail, basically suggesting that a lot of especially young women are going on TikTok and kind of getting the idea that they have invisible illnesses and was very dismissive of a variety of invisible illnesses, including MS, I think was mentioned in there. And, and so we have these kind of polarizing directions when it comes to this issue, but at least it's being talked about and the reaction against that article has been strong. I know there's a petition out there to have it taken down. I think it's maybe on change.org. I'm not sure, but yeah, so it's, it is a huge challenge, but I agree like that validation and that that listening because it, uh, most patients I think are reluctant to come forward with descriptions of their physical condition, especially to someone who doesn't seem open or receptive to those things. So in my experience, you know, hypermobile patients really seem to, you know, think a long time before they go to the doctor, really prepare their kind of description of events. And I've certainly experienced just being completely dismissed, just, you know, we've all heard the phrases, uh, you know, for me, I was told, I see women like you all the time, you're just trying to have it all. That's what this is. And it's like, it's, it's devastating. And it's, it's a huge issue. And it damages the patient doctor relationship, it damages trust in the entire, you know, medical institution. And it is a barrier to proper, accurate diagnosis and treatment. And so it's a huge issue. And so thank you for spotlighting it.
1: That's one of those, those first things that I've said to patients, you know, after a diagnosis, like it, it was never in your head, it's been in your joints. And let's see how we can tackle that and give you a better quality of life. Yes. And people are just, yes, it just, it's just one of those moments. Um, like I said, it, and everyone's reactions are so different when they, when they get a diagnosis, but that moment of validation for so many patients, I mean, it's, to, to, to be able to see that is you can hear me now? I have no words to express it because it is it's such a beautiful thing to see someone truly truly being able to to understand their health.
0: Absolutely. Yes, definitely. That's a beautiful moment out of a out of a really terrible situation and we hear that all too often that suggestions that EDS is in the head and unfortunately there's a lot of literature out there that suggests as much and I and others have looked at that literature and there's a lot of issues with a lot of that literature, um, which we definitely don't have time to go into. But uh, even recently, there was an article came out suggesting that POTS was the result of fear conditioning. And I know that got a big reaction from the community and it caused a pit in my stomach when I read about that because I'm just like, ugh, like most people or many people I know with, with POTS had some kind of infection or some injury period of um, recovery from surgery, a major hormonal event, something like that, very physical that precipitated their POTS. Not everyone for sure. I think to suggest that POTS is the result of fear conditioning is a wild overstatement. I haven't even gotten through the whole article, so I, I need to read it and dig into it more, but uh, um, yeah. So, and, and it's, it's interesting to me because I started learning more about the types of tissue to try to get a better understanding of of this condition and, and what I could do about it. And I learned about the four types of tissue, you know, endothelial, like organ, muscle, connective and nerve, like neuron tissue. So I thought, wow, the irony is that connective tissue is everywhere in the body. So this like, you know, bones are considered connective tissue that kind of blew my mind, like parts of the blood cells, blood vessels have connective
1: issue? It's 70% of her body. I tell people we, I I describe an EDS body as a, a home built with jelly screws. Like, it, it's together. It definitely needs a little bit more work than a, sometimes of maintaining than a typical house, but it's, you know, it's it's your whole body. And that's why we see that, you know, from head to toe, you know, symptoms that sometimes we we get a diagnosis of one thing specifically for our heart or our lungs or our eyes, but not looking again at that big, huge picture of someone.
0: Absolutely. And I didn't even realize it was 70%. That is kind of a a mind blowing um, amount. Yet it makes a lot of sense. And I love the jelly screws in the house metaphor as well. And like you said, you can build a house with jelly screws, it might take more upkeep. But also, you know, if some heavy winds come by, you know, there may be more damage than the house next door that's built with steel or metal nails or screws. So Um, I think that's also a really useful and practical metaphor. And I love that you come up with those simple, straightforward, easy to communicate metaphors that can resonate with this population that's really varied in every single way. And I think the 5 to 80 um, range really highlights what a spectrum that exists and that you're working with in your practice. So that's awesome. Are there unique challenges that you see when it comes to diagnosing older adults, people closer to the 80 years old end of the spectrum?
1: I, I truly feel it's actually even harder to diagnose a patient as they're getting older as kind of inverse to a child. Adults have lived their lives. You had mentioned, you know, that forward flexion for yourself. You know, you've had surgeries so people have have lived their lives. They've had injuries, surgeries, you know, the change of connective tissue simply with age. You know. I think with older patients, I, I'm relying much more heavily on kind of overall medical history, um, because again, you know, a, a bite and score in someone who's had a hip replacement and a spinal fusion, and maybe they broke their elbow or something, is, is never going to be accurate by that, you know, the time I'm potentially assessing them. Um, so it really is looking at that full picture for that person to help with that, you know, accurate diagnosis.
0: That makes so much sense. And yeah, so many life factors that are coming into play when you're diagnosing people that have been through a significant period of life, and making it that much more challenging. The the Demler study suggesting that 25% of patients are waiting 28 years for a diagnosis. You know, we know there's a lot of people out there who are undiagnosed. And so this is a huge issue. And so, again, I just have complete respect for your uh, your scrutiny in finding the particular shade that fits the patient that you're you're seeing in front of you and being able to look at them as a whole person. I think that's, uh, that's amazing in light of this kind of wilderness and lack of reliable information, data, scientific studies, and you will have a particular passion for teaching, which is also amazing. And we need that so much, especially from knowledgeable people like yourself, how did that passion develop, and what have you done to educate other physicians about EDS?
1: So you can totally laugh at my answer because it's a total millennial answer. Um, but I feel like it was totally the Bill Nye and Magic School Bus generation. You know, science was cool. It was accessible. It was it was always captivating to me. I loved science. I, you know, watched the world out of all of those things. You know, having it on VHS and playing it over and over again. Um, I grew up, my mother went back to school for respiratory therapy and eventually for nursing um, as a single parent when I was a very young age. So I had always, I'd been around medicine, but not like formally, you know, she she was a first generation college student. Um, when I was growing up, I felt like I had amazing, passionate science teachers, both through middle school and high school. And I mean, these were just awe-inspiring, brilliant persons that just loved teaching people to explore science and to love science. Um, I think I really truly really fell in love with teaching as a second and third year resident because I had medical students with me in the clinic. And I, I loved kind of putting those pieces together, teaching, doing a physical exam. And I, I would love to teach in front of a patient. I think so many patients um, at the end of the day, as a, a physician, what am I not, but a, a teacher of health and science and, and medicine. Um, so teaching not only for my student, but teaching for my patient. You know, I actually have a background in child and family studies and it has a strong emphasis on education. Um, and that's why I think teaching, is, it's so empowering for not only uh, patients, but also other physicians. Um, I would absolutely love to be involved with you know EDS curriculum one day in the academic world, as I think that's we we need to go back to to square one. This is something that we need to teach people how to look for zebras in you know, the first couple months of med school, not not you know twenty years into practice. Um, And so I think it's it's seeing the beauty and power of science and the knowledge of science that has continued to drive my desire to teach others.
0: That's amazing. And I love how you have that perspective of how part of your role as a physician is as an educator with, with respect to the patient. And I think that's a big missing piece in most of the medical system in general. You know, the the typical model, let's say the old school model is kind of the doctor knows best. You know, you come in, tell them your symptoms. They are able to miraculously arrive at your precise diagnosis out of the many, many thousands of conditions that exist. And they tell you the plan, right? And that just does not work for a lot of people. And it's so important to take into consideration that person's lifestyle, their goals, Mm -hmm. and getting them to understand what their condition is, and why, you know, the physician has selected whatever options for, for them to consider is critical to executing on those plans, right? Like, we need to be able to have at least a basic understanding of what's going on and why we're treating it if we want to. And I think that's, I say this all the time, but one of my mantras in life is really informed consent. Informed consent is <laughs> so important. Uh, both parts, the informed part and the consent part. And uh-huh. you can't have that without a respectful relationship that really takes into consideration that person's needs, understanding how much they want to understand and, and all of that. And so I think that's an amazing foundation. And then that and then to be using that experience that you gain from clearly being a good listener and picking up on what patients say and your own experiences and putting that all together to to speak to other physicians. And I completely agree. We shouldn't be in this position of people being diagnosed when they're 80. I mean, this condition is diagnosable from a much younger age than that. And it's just astounding to me. And I know I say this all the time. And so I'm you know, sorry to the listeners who have heard this six times before, but I mean, Hippocrates first described hypermobility in four hundred BC. Ailers and Danlos did their research over a hundred years ago. This has been known for a while, and yet it has not made it to the mainstream level of knowledge and consciousness that conditions that are actually more less prevalent than EDS have successfully done. And so, you know, I think there's some great advocacy going on there. And I, I wholeheartedly hope that you are a part of developing the curriculum for teaching about hypermobility and EDS, because I think you're, you're a wonderful voice to be, to be speaking about that. And so what has it been like for you also being a multiracial first-generation family medicine doctor with EDS? I assume there must be some, some unique <laughs> challenges um, that go along <laughs> with, with your role in the medical field.
1: Absolutely. I would say it's one of the most bumpy yet rewarding, you know, parts of my life. You know, as a, a first generation physician, you just often don't even know what to ask or how to ask or who to ask. Um, and you add on, that on of being a multiracial person and a still predominantly white career path um, and kind of feeling like I'm needing to prove myself to be, you know, that imposter syndrome in so many different layers. And then being a disabled provider, there's, yeah, there's kind of a whole lot, Um, as well as, you know, there's not a lot of other doctors out there with bright pink hair and quite the unique um, upbringing and background. Um, And so it's, I think a lot of it now as I'm growing um, in my practice is just realizing that I deserve to be here. My voice is, is absolutely worthy of being at the table, um, and not only for myself, but for my patients and all those that potentially may follow my footsteps, and those who have taken those giant steps before me. I laugh at the whole zebra corn MD, my Instagram name, that actually beautifully came from one of my patients one day when we were talking, and they're like, "Hey, D- Dr. Cruz, you're you're a unicorn. Like you're super rare but amazing. But but well, like you're also a zebra. So you're like a zebra corn, um, and so I just kind of giggled and laughed. But I felt like that was such a beautiful combination. I and I've told patients in the past, you know, sometimes it takes someone from the herd. To know the herd to understand the herd um and so that that's has made patients smile that understanding of that the mutual of understanding of of our conditions with one another and though we all have unique stripes and unique experiences at the end of the day we're we're all zebras and we just need to be be taking care of the dazzle which is if you don't know what a dazzle is it's the the herd of zebras called a dazzle so yeah we're fancy we're a dazzle
0: (laughs) yeah it, it it's such an inspiration to me how authentically, you are living your life. And I loved how you said you've come to the realization that your voice deserves to be heard. And I'm thinking like, of course it does. Like you're one of the most brilliant people out there right now. But (laughs) but yet at the same time, I totally understand how that was a path. I mean, not totally. I mean, I certainly don't have the unique challenges, but I've struggled with imposter syndrome and, you know, that sense of not feeling like I fit in with the the status quo. So I think it's incredible not only that, you know, you've persisted, but you have you have such a great attitude in the face of, you know, so much adversity and and like I said you you really are Um, authentically, you know, living your life, um, you know, as a disabled physician, as a uh, multi-racial physician, just all these things, you know, and and to embrace that and to have patients reflect that back at you in such a wonderful way and give you such a beautiful fitting nickname. Like that's really, (laughs) it warms my heart in this cold climate right now. So um, that is truly wonderful. Now let's talk a little bit about treatment. Do you have a specific protocol or a way of approaching treating patients with EDS, or is it completely dependent on that individual person's needs?
1: So I I don't have a set protocol per se. I do usually see patients after... I've given a diagnosis doing what's called a first line management. So, we're talking a a lot of things about the importance of, you know, moving our bodies in a healthy way, Um, hydration, fluid, electrolytes, talking about food sensitivities, talking about just general things of pain management, be it bracing, taping, mobility aids, um, pills, topicals, you, you name it, kind of talking about those. And then, talking about mental health, because with an invisible disability, there is a lot of struggles that we face both in our community and the general ableist community that many of us live in um, overall. And I I don't want to have a set protocol beyond kind of my general foundations because I'm there to kind of, you know, meet every person at at where they're at. You know, as I kind of talked a little bit earlier is is my evaluation, even for someone that has a previous diagnosis, I'm trying to learn someone's stripes. I'm trying to figure out, know what's going on for them particularly so that I can take the best care of them um, you know every zebra has a similar pattern but we're still all unique individuals you know I, I try to meet patients where they're at see what their list of concerns are and kind of hit from the highest priority and kind of go there I tell people if anything give me time you know there's a lot of different things and co-occurring things that are going on with EDS and being a solo team um, for evaluation not in overall management but being the, the one of the the loan provider is doing this care. Sometimes, is you know, when you're a finite one source, one resource, it's in and of itself. It can just be challenging to you know. I wish I could have a full week of, of uh, having a diagnosis and going through all the things, but sometimes it's just those visits over that first year or two where we're truly going through all these different evaluations to get more answers for a patient to see what we need to be doing for treatment.
0: I think that's such a great perspective, and I think it it does make sense to not have a set protocol because we are dealing with you know such a spectrum here when it comes to hypermobility conditions and again I just that's it's amazing that you are looking at that individual you know for all of their specific needs and I'm glad you called out mental health and I think that is such an important part of it and it's really it's tough because it's really important to get accurate treatment for coexisting mental health conditions that can occur with EDS and yet it's such a challenge in the community because most providers that you know I've heard of from speaking with other hypermobile people are just fundamentally completely unaware of EDS or even have misinformation and an inaccurate view of what it is and so it's again the dream that someday providers will be educated in a more appropriate scientifically accurate way about how the unique challenges and and experience of EDS can result in, in mental health conditions. And, you know, I make the point that like, if, if there was a person whose hip was popping out all the time, and they're having muscle spasms, so they can't, you know, work as they did before, they can't socialize, like if they weren't experiencing some degree of anxiety or symptoms of depression, like that might be a symptom of some kind of, like dysfunction. like It's normal that we experience anxiety and depression along with the symptoms we have, especially when they're untreated and especially when they're untreated and we're being told they're all in our heads. So a lot there for sure. What do you see as the biggest challenges to getting proper treatment as both an EDS patient and a provider?
1: I think we've kind of talked about it several times through here of just, they're just simply not enough knowledgeable providers, um, not only for diagnosis of EDS, but even for specialists. You know, if there's things that are definitely beyond my level of care understanding, sometimes it's hard to find knowledgeable specialists to connect with, you know, say I have a patient who has very severe POTS and I've kind of gone through basic medications with them. And I, I think they definitely need that higher level of management, you know, trying to find those specialists can be so struggling as well as surgeons, you know, many times for joint issues, CCI, things of that sorts, you know, I get limited to who I can refer patients off to um, that I know will understand their condition, validate and acknowledge their their condition as well as, understand what's the best approach for those things. So it can be really challenging. Again, you know, I think there's less than half a dozen of us in my local area that see patients for EDS and even far less that are seeing patients taking insurance. And it's really challenging as many patients have limited incomes for them to be able to to receive the medical care that they deserve um, for things. You know, often I'm, I'm, my network of persons I work with, be it physical therapy, other specialists, um, therapists, you name it, you know, I am often connecting through word of mouth from other patients um, to these, you know, providers. Because again, there's, there's not, there's no... Lovely EDS brain. Sometimes um, <laughs> it's just the reality of EDS brain when it just goes whoop. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the the challenges of of trying to find others that not only know this but are are understanding the best approaches for that. You know, it's it's also a tough balance for me. You know, managing my own symptoms and my expectation of of being at the level of my fully able body is. Uh, colleagues every single day you know i I do have some accommodations but many of my accommodations are kind of at that same level of some of my able bodied colleagues you know i'm I'm unable to work full- time because I know physically my body could not fully handle and or recover properly if I was working five days a week. And I know I come from a place of privilege being able to do that. Um, but it's it's been challenging um, in that workplace of, of having having to navigate that being a disabled provider and trying to get those around me to understand when it's that constant education you're already doing for not only patients, but yourself. Uh, but it's, it's, it's tough. Again, I, I, I hope and believe that one day that we're we're going to have so much more knowledge and understanding and get these patients, all these patients, uh, an earlier diagnosis um, and better management and treatment for them. Absolutely. And I'm
0: so glad you highlighted the issues of lack of access. And like you mentioned, there's very few providers that even will see patients with EDS and have a baseline level of knowledge and then a much fewer subset of that who will uh, take insurance. And that's a huge issue for so many people and something that I really hope with continued advocacy and, you know, the great kind of awareness that people like you are raising. I'm hoping, fingers crossed, knocking on wood um, for a brighter future on that one, because yeah, the community deserves much better than what most people are experiencing now. Uh, Are there resources or other materials that you recommend for patients who are newly diagnosed with EDS or are looking to learn more?
1: So I have a quick, like dot, what we call dot phrase in the the medical chart world, where I put in a literally a period and a few things after it, and it pops up this nice little list. But I kind of have my three basic books that I kind of go back to and point to for patients. One that's more medical, one that's more the personal patient insight, and one that's talking about physical therapy. So I think everyone, most everyone in the EDS community, is pretty familiar with Disjointed. Mm-hmm. I think it is a beautiful book and very well written. I always tell people it looks super intimidating, and yes, it's. Or pages. You do not need to consume the whole thing, but no, this is a really good resource for a person to look at and, you know. It- be it bits or chunks, but that book in and of itself, I think, is um, is so eye opening, and it, it's also, I think, is a great resource for providers who want to be more knowledgeable and have you know an at hand resource for them to review. Mm-hmm. Um, I Christy Cox's new book is is wonderful, and I'm so glad to finally have a patient perspective to share with my patients. And so that has been. I, I was really excited when the book came out. I had seen the pre order for it, and so I got it right away once um, once it had been released. And and now being able to uh, reference that for my patients to, to that, like I said, have that patient perspective because as, as much as medicine loves to talk about physical therapy and medicine and all that, I think it's looking at that false perspective of your your emotional, um, spiritual, whatever other parts of your health that is important and that I think Christy very much covers in her book. Um, and then I, I, of course, I nod my head to the, the Mel Downey physical therapy book. Uh, it's, it's one of those that it, for a lot of my patients who have struggled with access to physical therapy, I think it is... A helpful baseline book for them to reference, go off of. I know there are several physical therapists out there who kind of use it as their standard protocol. I tell people this is not an end-all be-all for physical therapy, but sometimes it can be a really great baseline for patients to at least start to see how they can be moving their body more so to help with their their hypermobility.
0: That is such a concise group of resources that I also fully endorse all three of them. Uh, Disjointed, amazing, such a great resource. Christy's book, also, she's done a phenomenal job. And she's just such a kind, lovely person. And the PT book, just such a great kind of EDS starter kit, so to speak. <laughs> great mm-hmm. place to start. And like you said, Disjointed, Like it's, it's very long and it certainly can be a bit daunting, but you know, for patients out there, feel free to look at the index of chapters and see what chapters speak to you and your issues and start from there. And you might have the experience like my grandmother read it and she started reading it just to read the chapter that I had contributed. But she said, this is so interesting. And she ended up reading the whole thing. And I was like, wow, you read the whole 600 pages? Really? I'm like, it's pretty dense. But she was like, it's just so well written. Completely agree. It's really a great piece. And thank you so much for joining us today, um, Dr. Elise Cruz. And thank you for your tireless work in raising awareness about EDS and treating underserved patients with EDS and other hypermobility conditions. Your work is so very much appreciated. And it's incredibly inspiring to see people living with EDS like yourself on the front lines of helping patients in the community and working to educate other providers in the medical field. It really makes me
1: hopeful. I have to say, Carrie, today has been an absolute wonder and a a total privilege to be with you. Again, I want to thank you for your voice, you know, uplifting and as we can say, holding together um, our hypermobility community. You have truly um, been a voice for the voiceless and I I can't thank you enough.
0: That's incredibly kind. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Well, that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.